Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Home Abstract and Title Company was founded in 1867 and is the oldest company still operating in McLennan County. Home Abstract is comprised of a team of honest, friendly, hardworking professionals dedicated to providing both commercial and residential real estate clients with the highest level of communication and service. Their team is committed to working hard and building and maintaining strong relationships because transactions are so much more than just deals. They are clients deserving of the courtesy, care and respect that home abstract and title company is known for visit home abstract and title company at homeabstract.com cross the brazos and waco i'm safe when i reach seven Welcome back to the Waco History Podcast. Uh, this continues our Crossroads series that Rick Tullis and I have been doing on Waco History, looking at Waco as, as Crossroads. Although uh, through Rick's research, we're trying to get Hub City uh, <laughs> traction. Uh, as yeah, a yeah. Tag. I, I found that as something they actually called it themselves, right? We've talked about it before. 1870s, you got the roads, you got the river, you've got the trains coming into town. They called themselves Hub City. Hashtag Hub City. Ho- hopefully that trademark's expired if we want to use it. So so this uh, this particular episode is looking at Waco as a political crossroads, and there's only one local figure that we could bring in <laughs> to talk about politics, and it is the mayor, uh, Dylan Meek. Uh, so uh, the Honorable Dylan Meek is with us today. Thank you, Dylan, for being with us. Yeah, thrilled to be here. Thanks for letting me join you guys today. Yeah. Hey, so so Dylan, we got you here. What? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? How'd you get to Waco? And what led you Absolutely, into yeah. the, become mayor? Really glad to be here today. I've always told Rick he had a face for radio. So it's, <laughs> some, uh, some might disagree. It's perfect it's not even that, that we're, we're able to join one another. I grew up in a small town outside of Victoria, Texas. My dad's a cattle rancher. Mom was a public school teacher. Came to Baylor in the fall of 2003, graduated in 2007 from undergrad and 2010 from law school and stuck around Waco. Met my wife at Baylor, Lindsay. Uh, we have two kiddos. Maybe we just turned six and our son Davis is four. And, have and they're Wacoans by birth, right? Wacoans by birth. Yeah, yeah that's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And uh, got a job here after law school and fell in love with the city and have been here ever since. Yeah. And, and a little trivia, that's actually how I met Dylan the first time. He needed an expert witness on a uh, on a legal thing he was working on. Yeah, and, it, was a, it was a court case involving an an HVAC unit, and Rick was going to be our expert star witness. Hmm, we ended up go. settling the case before trial. Yeah, well, I I brought such a strong presence to the case. <laughs> they, they were able to they, settle. They caved. Yeah, they it's caved. intimidating. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, um, I say we we dive in. I mean, politics. Uh, of course, is, is important anywhere, but I think uh, as, as we've dug through the history, there's some things, interestingly, that happen in Waco that don't happen everywhere. 
and hopefully we'll unplug that. There's different layers. There's the local political scene, which mm-hmm. we've got Dylan here to, to um, unpack for us a little bit. Then there's also the state and federal uh, government uh, stuff that has happened over the years as well. So let's start at the very beginning. All right. Yeah, let's start with uh, Waco and, and talk a little bit more about Waco, and then we can talk about Waco's engagement well, statewide, national. That's right, sort of thing. right. Yeah. And and I would I would back up a little bit. The county government was way more important than the city government. Sorry, Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> In early Texas, right? It was a, it was, yeah. a, it was a more of an agrarian society. Um, not many people lived in cities. Cities were the place you went to go get more supplies. Um, or, you know, because of travel or if it's a hub city, you know, that's mm-hmm. you're, you're going through there as you're driving your cattle up. But yeah. uh, so it was a bit of a coup for Waco to secure the county seat uh, in 1850 uh, yeah. when it was secured. And, and I came across this interesting quote from uh, George E. Rath. So uh, it, from the pulled it out of that 1876 handbook we've talked about before. <clears throat> but he's talking about the county being founded in 1850. So here he goes. <clears throat> At the first election day, um, but sixty votes were were counted, uh, and at this election, it was a, it was made manifest that in that day, more Democrats moved to the new countries than Whigs. Uh, there being only about four Whig votes cast in that election. When the county was organized, the settlements were in particular localities, of which there were but three, known as Erath Settlement, White Rock, White Rock Settlement, and the Waco Settlement. So the first election only had uh, only had seventy votes or sixty votes. Sounds like your first uh, city council election. Uh, a, little, a little more than that, okay. but not by much. Right. <laughs> yeah, we. I, you know, one thing I thought too was interesting was how much Erath. Because I think politics is so much of politics is about people, and I thought it was really interesting how much he wanted Waco to be developed as a city, and he actually reached out based on my research to Jacob de Cordova, who is one of the the landowners and was strategic in saying, we need to build the city here. Asked him to draw up the city. Um, Erath went and then surveyed it. And there was a bit of a a battle between Rebecca de Cordova and Erath on what the name of Waco would be. Um, They wanted to, uh, Rebecca de Cordova wanted to name it, um, Lamartine teen, Lamartine, Lamartine. We think, I don't know. Yeah, may, yeah. The pronunciation may be lost to history here, but yeah. And then he, but he was able to compel enough people to rally around the idea of Waco. And so that was another kind of early political maneuvering of two powerful people trying to make a decision that they think is best to land on what, what or wouldn't be the best outcome. But right. we know what, what won in that. Right. We're not sitting here doing the Lamartine history <laughs> podcast. So that's yeah, or the flying L logo. Uh, yeah. I don't know if that would have been not nearly tried. successful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We talked about that. Just the, the, you know, they're, they offering land for a courthouse offering it, you know, parcels of land to in that deal uh, to make sure it was the County seat. Mm-hmm. Well, but, but it actually had to get voted on. So mm-hmm. I've got uh, Erath uh, wrote uh, further. The act of the legislature to create the county, they appointed six or seven men to locate the county seat. So it wasn't it wasn't in the bag for Waco. Mm-hmm. They had to, they had to locate it. The names of whom, as I recollect, were S. P. Ross, Neil McLennan, Lear Davis, Claiborne Varner, David Landon, Nathan Puckett, and perhaps another. <laughs> they were in favor of Waco, except one, 
and the people generally favored the place. End quote. I think it's uh, I think it's funny. Have you ever been part of starting something and you're trying to remember? Oh yeah, I think so and so was there, and I think we did this, and yeah, you know, all right, yeah. we, we chose Waco, no big <laughs> deal. <laughs> so that's basically what happened. And a good way to get something named after you is not be there at the meeting uh, when it's when <laughs> right. it's organized, right? Or get or get put in charge of it. <laughs> So, uh, so Rick, you, you've done research. Is Waco important kind of politically even early on? Um, yeah. So, uh, as we've talked about the, the location of Waco in the state, I, uh, I can uh, imagine, I don't know exactly the reason for doing it, but, uh, there, there was the, one of the first recorded state Democrat conventions in Waco in 1857. So, um, they, they showed up here. I'm sure it was a great middle ground for a lot of them to meet. Um, but they, uh, had about 300 delegates from 90 different can- mm-hmm. uh, counties at the time. And that uh, resulted in the nomination of a guy named Harold, uh, I'm sorry, Hardin Runnels, who became the fifth governor of Texas. Mm-hmm. And as we've talked about before, uh, Waco is going to kind of be known for, um, governors. We'll, we'll talk about those as we, as we go ahead, but Several different governors are going to yeah. come from Waco. Yeah. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about Waco as sure. it develops. Yeah, sounds while, good. While we got the mayor here. Uh, it's interesting to think about in 1850, there were only about 800 people that lived in what what was Waco, mm-hmm. but 6,200 people lived in the mm-hmm. county as a whole. So, you know, a, a vast majority of people actually lived out in the country. I mean, it was a, it was a you know, farming uh uh, was the main industry at the time. So it makes sense, right? And they didn't have big agricultural farming or mechanical farming like we have now. I mean, somebody farmed 100 or 200 acres mm-hmm. at most. So um, so the the city government, uh, Dylan, you got any insight on how that evolved? I mean, I know uh, Texas has, has different rules yep. about what kind of acceptable city governments you can have, and I'm sure that's evolved over time as well. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it – and a bit technical, but the city was incorporated by an act of legislation in 1857. And it was in 1862 that the first charter was actually surrendered, and then the city just existed under this General Incorporation Act until another charter was actually granted in 1871. Hmm. And then the the first mayor of Waco was a guy named Captain J.M. Smith, and they elected the city attorney back there. Now we appoint the city attorney, and it was um, someone named C.B. Um, Pierre, who was um, the first city attorney. Again, I might not be pronouncing that right, but I think I am. But it was in 1908 when the population of the city really began to grow that the city shifted and adopted a commissioner commissioner form of government. And this overwhelmingly passed. It was an interesting, this is what my research showed, and I don't know exactly how this played out, but 15 people um, were selecting four citizens to be appointed as commissioners. And this system was voted on by the whole population. But then 15 people were selected to appoint four commissioners. And each of the commissioners were successful in business and had accepted a public office at the sacrifice of their own private interest at the earnest solicitation of the committee and yielded to the public demand for their services as part of their patriotic duty was what this um, this handbook that was published in 19... 19- um, 08 said. 
So it was really interesting to me to see that they wanted to shift to this commissioner style of government. And that existed until uh, 1946 in that manner. And so it was really interesting to me to see how that that went about. But well, and I think yeah. the that commissioner style uh, w- was also used in the counties. I think that was that was what people were used to seeing. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's why they just adopted it for the uh, uh, for the city as well. I mean, we see it today. We have one county judge and four commissioners that divide the county mm-hmm. in uh, well, four equal parts. A big shift in that nationally with municipal politics is Galveston. So after the 1900 flood, when Galveston is wiped out. They come in and reconstitute the government, and they establish a commission form of government. It's one of the first municipal kind of governments. And it's during an era where they're wanting qualified people to hold these sorts of positions instead of, uh, you you know, parties that win appointing their cronies to, you know, controlling the police or controlling sanitation. Mm -hmm. They want people that, that have training and expertise in those sorts of areas was really interesting to me that in researching whether or not to adopt this form of government, they toured many cities that had adopted it across the state to try to understand best practices, pros and cons, and then come back and sell it to the electorate as to why this would be better. Mm. It was really interesting in around that time period, um, in a 1912 um, a handbook, they really discussed some of the achievements that had come to be between 1908 when they passed this form of government and 1912 when this handbook was issued. Now, it was issued by the city, so obviously you're kind of <laughs> putting your best foot back, yeah. putting your best foot forward, but it was interesting. Are, are you saying the city sometimes only tells us what we want to Not hear? Not now. You heard it here. This was in 1912. Yeah. Okay, that would never happen today. It, uh, But it was interesting, this handbook, it covered everything that was going on in municipal government, streets, water, parks, growing the economy, um, there's this real commitment to building beautiful buildings. There's a real commitment to strategy. Um, so it was interesting to me. There's some uh, some in this 1912 municipal government handbook, uh, uh, Waco municipal government handbook. There were some interesting things that I noted. So there's all the saloons were removed from residential districts <laughs> um, between 1908 and, and 1912. It was kind of like the uh, 19 or, uh, 1912 short term rental. Um, <laughs> a debate of, of how we're going to the SDRs of the, the, the zone, <laughs> the zoning, um, controversies. Tuberculosis was the greatest cause of death, um, in 1912. So different public health issues that they were facing then, but there's a, a, an interesting chapter on how to address public health and coming out of COVID. It, it really is this interesting dynamic of how communities have tried to be forward thinking and strategic about addressing public health at the time. Well, and it, it wasn't too much after that 1912, 1918 the is when the Spanish yep. flu came through with, and that probably hit Camp MacArthur pretty hard. I would expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, uh, there's a band named Alessandro's band that played in the parks semi-weekly in the summer. So kind of like the Brazos Knights <laughs> of 1912. So, uh, so nothing original. The city's doing nothing no, original we're just, now. We're just co- we think we are. That's the scary <laughs> thing is we think repeat. we are. We're just it's just all been done. Uh, fire trucks consisted of horses and wagons. Um, so luckily that um, uh, uh, we're not um, uh, putting out fires by that form anymore. But it was interesting to me they so um, they actually were having a debate on whether or not to continue to have a volunteer fire department or not. And I thought that was interesting because they were trying to 
weigh fiscal constraints against the professionalism that would come from a municipal taxpayer paid um, fire force. Uh, this is another great quote that I really think was interesting and, and also rings true for what it feels like in Waco right now. And this is from the mayor and it said, if Waco continues to grow as fast as she has in the last three years, it will take all of our resources, both by bonds and taxation to extend and build streets, furnish lights, sewers, water, additional police and fire protection, absolutely necessary to the continued and healthy growth of the city. Now, that was really interesting that, again, they're trying to be strategic. They're trying to grow this city. They're in this time of great growth. Mm -hmm. And it feels that that could be something that we say in a city meeting. I think you said that at a, I heard you say (laughs) that at a speech not too long ago. Exactly right now, because it is really a moment of um, great opportunity, great growth, but also you have to be strategic about your financial resources as as you grow. But I did really like that it said, um, you know, the mayor, and that handbook, that 1912 handbook, said that vowed that every citizen of Waco may have any business with the city, be he humble or great, regardless of race or color or politics, receive the same degree of honored consideration. And so I think that there was also this culture of wanting to bring dignity and honor and respect to the people of the community. And I, I hope that that's been a legacy that has carried on. And obviously, if you look back on our history, there's many marks of getting that wrong and that not becoming realized at all. So mm-hmm. I think history um, are like people. Um, there's things that you got to repent of and there are things that you celebrate. Um, but that quote or that desire, um, uh, if heartfelt at the time, is something of honor for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really interesting to me to see so many similarities in this 1912 form of government um, that was existing in trying to take that commissioner form of government and really modernize the city um, with with water and infrastructure. Right. Do you, so do you know at what point it switched to the council form of government? Yeah, so in 1946, there was an election held. Um, and at that time, um, there was a there were six commissioners from six different precincts that would be become elected. Um, so there's a, a bit of a charter revision. The mayor, city secretary, city attorney, city tax assessor and collector, and city recorder were all elected at large. So of any of those, now um, there is no um, city tax assessor and collector. L- later down the road, that was um, b- became a county position. Um, and it, currently, the city secretary... And it got... Uh, it pulled... It pulled that each government entity used to do their own correct collections, like yep. every school district, every municipality, the county, and that all got uh, eventually was centralized. I yep. think in the eighties, nineteen eighties, into what we now know as the place we all go protest our property taxes. Exactly. Yep. But there was a this charter amendment um, in the in the forties, um, but it was still under the a commissioner form of government. It just increased the number uh, of commissioners and increased some of the positions um, that were elected. And then there's another charter amendment from 1948 to um, 1988. It it was a very small charter amendment. It wasn't a a significant um, one, but one of the things was um, the mayor was selected by the city council members. And so um, what was really interesting to me was in the 50s, um, in response to um, an African-American 
um, running, um, wanting to run for office, the city did another charter amendment. Um, they, at this point, they are not no longer called uh, commissioners, but they're called council. They're called council men in the fifties. Now we call it council members. Um, but this charter was uh, put into effect and adopted in 1958. And what happened is it was um, all at large seats throughout the entirety of the city. Mm-hmm. So whoever is um, running for a seat has to be elected at large. Now, in 1966, uh, Dr. G.H. Radford was elected as the first African-American to city council under this at-large model. Um, so uh, there were still um, people who were able to, a people of color who, uh, a man of color was able to get elected. It was a really compelling story on him. He was a dentist and a historian and uh, mm-hmm. authored a book called The African-American Heritage in Waco, Texas. And it's really there's a lot attributed to him for really preserving the history of African-American culture, but he was the first um, African-American elected to city council in this at-large system. Um, so um, one of the, I think, greatest badges of honor that Waco carries is that it was the first city in the state of Texas to elect uh, an African-American mayor and um, that was Oscar Duconje, and he rose to local prominence through his civil service, and he was really dedicated to improving the lives of Waco. And in 1972, he ran for and won a city council seat, and he really um, earned the affection of his part of the city, um, but then ran unopposed um, in 1974 um, to uh, um, retain his seat, but then was selected as mayor by his so his co city council members, and that was um, again the first. There's a, a actually a um, a Dallas Morning News ran an article, and the the headline of it said, um, "Black and Catholic Duconge was selected this week by his fellow white councilmen to serve as mayor in this predominantly Baptist city, which in the past has been white ruled." And so it made statewide news that mm-hmm. Waco was the first to have a black mayor. And I think that that is something that Waco um, probably often forgets, but also should uh, really celebrate. But that, um, but that came to be after a decades-old effort to reform the voting practices in Waco. Because, uh, as I mentioned, when the city saw its first um, black candidate for city council in the '50s, uh, Waco transitioned from the single-member dist- districts to at-large seats. The effect of that was that the entire city voted, which really uh, protected a majority white Mm -hmm. uh, leadership structure. But in 1972, um, the League of Women Voters started a committee that challenged that system and later brought a lawsuit against it. And um, the uh, Austin lawyer, David Richards, who's the future husband, or excuse me, was the husband of the future governor, Ann Richards, took that case um, and the petitioners were, were William Halliburton, um, Leela Briscoe, Roland Ariola, Pete Arvizus, um, Francis Ortega, Kathy Patterson, Myrtle McKinney, Jane Derrick, and Wilbert Austin, who I, I had the honor of serving mm-hmm. on Waco City Council with, who became a city council member himself after having first served um, honorably uh, as, a, as a plaintiff in this lawsuit. And, um, in, on April 19th, 1976, an Austin judge ruled in favor of the Wake Cohen's in order that the city change 
to a single-member district system of electing the council. So while the fight for social justice and systemic equity remained elusive for many Wacoans of color, this ruling ushered in a period in which elected officials began to more accurately represent their constituencies. Still have a long way to go on this, but definitely was a major milestone in elected officials representing their constituencies. Mm-hmm. So a really cool uh, piece of piece of history. Um, in uh, 1977, one of those plaintiffs, um, Roland um, Areola, was the first Mexican-American elected to the city council, and he eventually served as mayor um, in uh, 1982. So our first Hispanic mayor was in 1982. Um, Marilyn Jones was the first woman and the first black woman to serve on the Waco City Council in 1980. Another first is Linnell McNamara became the first um, female mayor of Waco. But she, again, was elected um, or or appointed by her peers on the city council at that time. Mm -hmm. In 1988, we had another charter change, and um, the mayor became an elected office by the uh, the general public for the first time since 1948. Mm. And uh, that was Mayor Patillo was um, the first mayor to be elected um, in office by uh, by the general public. Alice Rodriguez continues to serve on our city council, but she was the first uh, city council member, uh, first Hispanic female elected to serve on city council in 1991. And then another interesting statistic was it was in um, 2004, Mae Jackson was the first black woman to be elected as mayor. Her daughter, um, Andrea Bearfield, a, a dear friend and esteemed colleague of mine uh, serves on the Waco city council currently. But in that year in 2004, it was the first time in the history of the council that it was predominantly female, Virginia Dupuy, Robin McDurham, LaRue Dorsey, and of course, mayor Jackson were all serving on the city council um, at that time. So, well, and um, Andre's not the first uh, offspring of a previous council member to serve. If I'm correct, if I'm thinking about that, right, there's been a, long line of uh, Duncans yep. mm-hmm. that have, yep. have served. Yep. And there's probably some others. I don't know if any, any others come to mind. But no, that's families that, that absolutely, have, yeah. have, um, have given and served in that way. Malcolm Duncan, Duncan Sr. definitely served. And um, Malcolm Duncan Jr. were both mayors of the city of Waco. So lineage of public service to the community. Mm-hmm. So I think that, again, those are some of the stat- statistics that I thought were interesting in terms of how Waco's city councils evolved, some of the history, how like so many parts of American history race um, impacted um, outcomes. Um, and um, part of that is, again, this tragic tragedy that we need to repent of. And I think in the uh, 50s when there was this desire to protect power in the, in the white class and then and, uh, celebrate um, the milestones that have come since then to really see a more equitable, diverse um, group of leaders. Mm-hmm. I'm interested the process of creating districts, you know, w- when they kind of went back in the eighties and they had to create districts. You, do you know the process w- by which they did that? You just did it recently, actually. Yeah. yeah I think that, that it's really interesting because there's great latitude, um, in the, f- the rules that mm-hmm. require, you know, one man, one vote, um, there has to be, there cannot be um, racial discrimination in this process. But there's also a lot of latitude in how you do that. Um, I, we just did this recently in Waco, and it was a very collaborative process. Um, it, 
But it is interesting to see, again, in local government, which I think local government really is a place where, unlike what I you see right now, particularly in these days in state and federal politics, where relationship um, triumphs oftentimes over partisanship or politics, uh, Waco has been and remains um, a nonpartisan um, form of government. So when, when we run for office, um, we don't affiliate with a political party. Um, and that carries through oftentimes in how districts get formed, at mm-hmm. least in the modern day of Waco, mm-hmm. um, in the sense that the goal is not per se for a political party to triumph, but rather um, how do we try to get um, district set up in a way that is going to be fair and representative of the community that we serve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, do we want to, is there anything else on the city that you, you want to share with us that's, before that's we start all opening it up to some of the other parts of, uh, of the political story of Waco? That's all I brought. Is there anything that, what do you guys think? Am I missing anything? Any, any things that, that y'all recall that you want to camp out on? Um, any, any, uh, any other characters along the way that you uh, ran into as you were doing your research? Uh, um, no. Okay. <laughs> so I'd like to ask you, Mayor Meek. So if, if we're talking about Waco as kind of a crossroads, yep. just this you know position Waco has, I mean, if we think of it politically, even mm-hmm. in your time and, and uh, as a council uh, person and as mayor, mm-hmm. Talk about kind of how Waco's positioned in Texas as far as with that kind of crossroads from your perspective. Yeah, I think that um, it really has always been a geographical crossroads. Um, center of Texas, that's why we have the, the slogan, the heart of Texas. We're, we're in the middle of, of the state, and there's an advantage that comes from the middle of the state. I think there's also – there is a legacy of – strategy and proactivity in capitalizing on that opportunity. Um, It's not by accident that there's a suspension bridge in the middle of town. There was a group of city leaders who came together and raised money to procure this bridge so that this city could be a crossroads to be um, that place where people came. And so what we see is this really rich history of that crossroads experience with um, a, a robust history of um, Tejano and um, Hispanic populations that grew up in the in the city. You have the industrial north that came to Waco as it began to expand in the early 20th century. There's a history of deep south. There's this great, great history of black gospel music in the city of Waco. So there's this real crossroads of culture um, that is representative um, and continues to be representative of this history of a, a melting pot city, um, largely because of its geographic um, location, combined with some natural resources and combined with some strategy like the construction of sus- the suspension bridge and some other things that the city endeavored to do. Yeah. Now, we haven't talked about it yet, but when we start talking about uh, state politics and, and federal level politics, there seems to be a loose correlation between uh, I think the the health and wealth of the city and its position in the state and its political clout in the state. Um, you know, when when cotton was the main thing, I mean, I think I think uh, Waco uh, uh, was was a growing, vibrant, healthy city in the in the middle of the state. Uh, so not only just being a crossroads, but was a major player 
for that reason because it did had a lot of had a lot more. We look historically political clout things where as we'll talk about when we start talking about governors stuff like that. People coming out of Waco were taking much bigger leadership roles than we see today. Um, but I, I look at that and go when you when we're talking about the future, I, I feel like Waco's again on a on a rising trajectory, mm-hmm. and I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in our uh, community's political clout going forward. But part of that also is the population of the city. Waco mm-hmm. used to be one of the largest cities in the state of mm-hmm. Texas, and due to historical factors, that shifted. Um, and I some of the big factors that I look at is some um, the tornado. I The more I understand the history of this city, that tornado ripping through downtown – had a bigger impact on the population, the the economy, and therefore the population of the city than I used to give it credit for. I grew up on the coast. Hurricanes would come through a city. Not many, I mean, and there's exceptions to this. I think people left the city of New Orleans in an epic storm like Katrina. But where I grew up on the coast, when a hurricane comes through, your insurance pays for it. And in modern times, you just rebuild. Mm -hmm. And that was not available after a devastating storm like that. And so I think there's a real setback on the economy and a real setback on the population growth of the city after that, that storm. Right. And then you look at Conley Air Force Base relocating in the thousands of middle-class employees and economic engine of thousands of people with disposable income leaving. And then you look at General Tire in the 80s and the thousands of middle-class um, uh, earners not having that income source anymore or leaving, uh, resulting in, in... So there's this kind of ebb and flow in the economy that I think directly impacted the population growth, which in some ways impacts the ability to have someone um, have that level of clout um, Mm -hmm. to run for statewide or national offices. Sure. If you were one of the major cities, I I think there's a, there is an impact to that. And sure. And Waco's history plays a role in that. Yeah. And, and the, the collapse of the cotton industry. Yep. um, That's another, yep. Absolutely. As that moved out of our area. Um, and took that that uh, economic engine with it. So um, great. Well, hey, let's. Uh, you want to shift a little bit? Let's start Let talking me, some state talk. Do we want to take it? I, I want to end with one quote that I think yeah. was good. So let, let's end with this quote. This was from that uh, Waco handbook, um, and this was Mayor Mackey from the 1912 Waco handbook, and it said, "Allow me." to make an earnest appeal to every citizen of Waco who's interested in the progress, the upbuilding, the uplifting, and the advancement of our beautiful and beloved Waco to join hands with the city administration to that end that we may accomplish great and good things for Waco. End quote. And I think that that is such a a beautifully worded quote on the ambition that the city government and city leaders had in 1912. And you look at what they were able to accomplish, and you can look at um, some of the beautiful buildings that were built in this era that kind of followed this time of strategy. And you look mm-hmm. at the prosperity that flowed. And again, it wasn't a perfect time. There's a lot of um, uh, bad things that happened um, in the in the years to follow that quote being made. Mm-hmm. But there was also many good things that happened too. And so again, repent of the bad, but celebrate the good. And my hope is that as we move forward, we can move forward in a city as a city with that kind of same ambition, um, that same kind of optimism um, for good and bright days ahead. Uh, very good. Well, uh, mayor's got to uh, go do and continue to work for you, the listener. But I want to ask him a question before he leaves because 
Uh, Rick, the mayor is a young man, uh, particularly compared to you and me. Oh, yeah. He's no. a young man. Yep. But I, I'm interested, one thing I know about you, Dylan, is you've always had an interest in local history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that, you know, there's plenty for mayor to deal with in the present, and there's plenty, plenty to worry about with the future. Why has history been something that you've been interested in locally? I think it's, it's really interesting. I think it's like a big story, and history always can read like a novel. Sometimes it's exciting, it's dynamic, it's... Um, so much of humanity is exposed in history. Um, I think that Waco particularly, that's the case. Waco um, has particularly big successes and particularly big um, uh, uh, dark. There's there's bright, bright light that comes from Waco's history and dark, dark darkness that comes from Waco's history. And I think that we have to respond to both of those things appropriately. But I think that Another reason is because I think history absolutely informs where we're going in the future. Mm-hmm. And so when we're trying to understand our economy or how to build financial security in the community or try to know why things are the way that they are right now, you have to understand history. So to understand where you're headed, you got to know where you came from. And so it's really critical and vital, um, I think, to really understand at least some of the big um big building blocks of our history. Um, and it's also, again, dynamic and exciting and interesting and fascinating to see how good, smart people were trying to do good for their community and, and in some ways did excellent with that heart and in some ways failed um, greatly. But um, Do you think we need more history professors? No, do you well, think they should be paid more? The, the ones we have definitely need to be paid more. <laughs> I think the interesting ones should be paid more. <laughs> Well, uh, we're going to thank the mayor for being. We're going to take a break now, but we're going to thank the mayor for being with us today. Thank you all for having me. It's been an honor. All right. Welcome back uh, from that uh, first ever uh, commercial break on the Week of History podcast uh, as the mayor had to leave and go off and do something mayoral. And so we're continuing our uh, conversation about uh, political crossroads uh, of Waco. And so, Rick, where do you think we ought to go next? Let's let's hit the state. Let's hit state politics. There's a rich history there uh, when it comes to Waco, especially uh, in the in the first part of of uh, Waco's history. So uh, I mentioned before already that it had been a, uh, in 1857 had been the hub or had been the, uh, the site for the first state Democrat convention. Um, and then uh, not too long after that, we started a, a, having a series of uh, governors that hailed from Waco. Started with a uh, gentleman named Richard Koch. Yeah, Richard Koch, uh, whose uh, grave is fairly prominent in uh, Oakwood Cemetery. I've seen his grave over there. Uh, is governor from 1874 to 1876. And he's kind of interesting because he is the first post-Reconstruction governor. Reconstruction right. isn't fully in until 1877. But he is a former... Um, uh, he served in the Confederate Army, right? Um, and it's under Coke that we begin to see uh, the the Klan activity kind of rise in Texas, and so steps taken post—not that Coke's leading it, but 
going to kind of set the tone for right. what happens in the late 19th century. Yeah. And so, and that's more color to what you're saying. I, I think part of reconstruction was if you served in the Confederate army, you were not allowed to have a public office through the period of reconstruction. So, mm-hmm. so you could see, uh, uh, I think of it even in terms of today's, uh, political activity, how the pendulum swing so far in, mm-hmm. yeah. and this period of time coming out of reconstruction, uh, would have been a heavy pendulum swing, I think. And that's where you end up with, uh, Richard Koch and kind of the environment that comes out of that. I, him even a, after he was, um, so, so it was the first election where these, these Texans that had served were able to run for office he overwhelmingly won, but the sitting governor, uh, who was the recon- the last Reconstruction governor, Edmund Davis, yeah, yeah, yeah he he was not willing to give up the the uh, the seat. Mm-hmm. There was some controversy there. Uh, there was some um, uh, controversy about election rigging. Or, yeah, it goes up to the Texas Supreme Court uh, yeah. for a final decision to be declared, but. Um, and so that Davis, as he eventually exits, it's going to be a long time before another Republican uh, right, is elected right. in Texas. Right. And if I remember right, he he appealed to the president at the time, which would have been uh, um, Grant, I believe, mm-hmm. appealed to Grant for to send in troops to Texas, and Grant wouldn't do it. And that, that ended his – he knew he couldn't hold on after that point um, and, and turned it over. I do have a description of Coke if you want to get a, kind of get a visual for yeah, him. Yeah, would love to. A white-bearded, hulking figure who towered six feet, three inches, and weighed 240 pounds. Um, he, he said that on a political platform, he could bellow like a prairie bull. And, and that, uh, <laughs> so hold on. Like I think I may be sitting across from uh, <laughs> the reincarnation of hey, Richard Coke. I, I, I'm not 240. Come on. <laughs> So, but a really important, really important late nineteenth century figure uh, was Richard Cope. Uh, interestingly enough, and we'll and we might mention this again. When we talk federal. He he uh, goes on to become a, a senator, mm-hmm. or, uh, one of the senators for Texas. Uh, in fact, he he left his last term of governor. Uh, he resigned to to become senator because mm-hmm. at the time I think senators were. Elected by the state legislatures? Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's going to be an issue in the late 19th century is direct election of senators. Yeah. Is, is a populist platform yeah. in the late 19th century. Now, something a lot of our um, local friends, not necessarily you or I, because we, we uh, went somewhere else to college, but uh, he was, uh, he was, uh, it was under his watch that Texas A&M was founded, started. Mm-hmm. And, and he made several other uh, educational improvements or progressive uh, educational changes to the public schooling uh, at many levels, but uh, starting Texas A&M was one of them. So a good segue there, because A&M is also connected to our next governor Yes, uh, we're going to talk about, who continues to make headlines uh, at A&M every <laughs> now and then, uh, yeah. Saul Ross. Yeah. Yes. And talk about somebody who needs his own podcast, maybe his own movie. <laughs> I mean, the life of Sol Ross is incredibly interesting, and we won't we won't unpack all of it here. Um, but uh, uh, after after Reconstruction, uh, I think one of the one of the requirements were 
each of the, the states that had joined the Confederacy had to rewrite their constitutions. They, they weren't allowed to keep the same constitution. Ironically, um, prior to the Civil War, Texas was known to have one of the best constitutions mm-hmm. uh, of, of uh, many of the states because they'd just written it in 1845, yeah. had the benefit of, you know, every, a lot of the others had gone before them, so they'd, they'd written a, a, a solid constitution. They come out of um, come out of Reconstruction, have had to rewrite their constitution, and a lot of anti-government sentiment at this point. And it, it, I think there was a series of them, but 1876 um, was a big year. I think it was when Coke was was uh, still in office, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that's where uh, a lot of the things that uh, that we see today in our in our state government that are different, like only meeting every two years. Yeah. That's where it came out of. They didn't want to, they didn't want a state government that met every year because they were a bunch of anti-government people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They cut the terms of many of the elected officials from four years to two years. So that's why our, you know, state legislatures set state legislators have to go over two years and many other things that were, um, very restrictive to government. As a result, we have one of the most amended state constitutions of, uh, of the rest of the, the states in the country. Um, and, and although there's been other um, uh, constitutional conventions in Texas to try to update it, modernize it, I don't, the, no one's had the will to actually do it yet. I think the last one was in the seventies or eighties and, uh-huh. and they couldn't, they couldn't get it, get anything done. So we just keep amending it. That's why we keep, I think 140 some odd yeah. amendments at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Okay, but all that to say, Sol Ross was one of the conventioners. Uh, he, he represented this area at that at that convention, and it seems like that's where he he had done local offices here. He'd been a mm-hmm. sheriff. He'd done some other stuff, um, um, but got at the the you know at that state level, and and he was kind of a known guy too. He mm-hmm. from his Texas Ranger days as a as a kid, and his his connections to the Parker family, um, mm-hmm. um, and Cynthia Ann Parker. Um, so he, he, he was a known guy. Anyway, he started getting, uh, I guess, pulled into that, into that, uh, into that realm. So, yeah. And it connects to, so a, one of the first presidents of Texas A&M, but a Baylor grad at independence. That, that kind of tells you a little bit of, of yeah. what, what era we're talking yeah, yeah, about yeah, yeah, there. Yeah. Uh, but he's going to serve from uh, 87 to 91. And interestingly, if you think of the uh, Capitol building today, uh, he's the first governor um, that serves from that, that building. Yeah. Yeah. Got to, uh, got to move in. Um, you know, his, his time, um, at least from what I've read, I mean, it wasn't, uh, as controversial as we saw with uh, with Richard Koch, mm-hmm. um, seemed to to have have governed a little more stably at that point. The pendulum kind of probably swung back to to a, a more moderate level, and um, he, he was able to uh, create uh, other reforms. Again, think about what's going on at this point. I mean, they're trying to get public education going at, at uh, not just uh, uh, primary and secondary, but uh, also colleges i think at, at this at this point uh the the texas a&m college although it had already been started was not going so hot 
and um, they they uh, at the time he exited as governor, that's where he ends up becoming president of Texas A and M, and yeah, we know the story there. And yeah, get, it, let's turn to a happier uh, story that that moves away from Texas A and M, and that is a name all uh, Baylorites know, uh, which is Pat Neff. Yeah, uh, the only individual who has ever been president of Baylor and also the highest office uh, in Texas. Uh, so he serves as governor of Texas from 1921 to 1925. And uh, not, not everybody knows that um, he's, a lot of Baylor folks don't know, don't realize seven years before he's Baylor's president, uh, he was in, uh, in the governorship. <laughs> yeah, he uh uh, it was, I guess, it was it was good training for him to become president of Baylor. But yeah, he he actually went to McGregor High School, so it wasn't, mm-hmm. he wasn't a Waco kid, but he was a McLennan County kid. In uh, in you can imagine, uh, uh, if anybody's been out to Mother Neff State Park, I believe that was some of his family land. That mm-hmm. uh, and during his tenure, there was a big push to uh, create state parks, and uh, he led by example. Yeah, in that case. Yeah, yeah, and we've we've talked about him on the the podcast before, uh, Dr. Limley, who was our chiropractor, who was arrested 66 times, uh, during, go back and listen to that episode. Yeah. Uh, but Pat Neff defends him, uh, at at one point, um, as an attorney. Right. Right. Yeah. And also, uh, yeah, one of the big things going on politically during that time is the prohibition movement. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so a little bit of controversy in Pat Neff's career on that. He, he was, uh, uh, before I think taking the governorship, was a strong prohibitionist, was a, was a little less strong on it once he was governor. <laughs> and then as we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit, he ends up uh, in, inviting, once he's president of Baylor, invites a figure to Baylor who uh, went against some of the, the Baptist uh, standards on alcohol consumption and that led to a little bit of pushback on him <laughs> yeah he you know Pat Neff deserves his own episode uh, yeah. as well as we think about folks we should take a, a deeper dive into yeah um, yep so uh, but but definitely a um, uh, and I didn't realize this but it was uh, uh, the age 60 that he took over at Pat I mean, at, uh, at Baylor. Okay. Wow. So he was not a young man. I didn't realize he was that old. Yeah. yeah. Um, yep. All right. Who we got next in the governor? Well, governor's so, uh, so after, after Pat, we come to, uh, Ann Richards. It takes us a few years, but in 1991. Oh, wait, no, no. Let's, uh, don't forget, uh, um, we, uh, you want to m- mention Price Daniel, or well, those, you, you want to well, mention Mark White? You can okay, come back but to those them? are Baylor grads. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah, not. Yeah. They're not from. They here. hung around in town. Right, yeah, right, right. Yeah. No, the, we're not counting those. We're talking about people. What'd you call it earlier? The uh, um, Waco uh, Dylan's kids. They're uh, oh, the anchor babies. They're yeah. they're they're Waco. These are anchor babies. Yeah. Um, Ann Richards is a Lacey Lakeview, uh, but you know, Grand Greater Waco, Greater uh, McLennan County. Yeah, yeah, McLennan County. All right, let's talk about Ann Richards because I think she's a fascinating political figure. Yeah. Um, 
like you said, uh, she was she was born in, in Lakeview. So it was before it was Lacey Lakeview. That was actually a consolidation of two towns mm-hmm. uh, later on. But, uh, yep, born in 1933 in Lakeview. Uh, got her bachelor's degree from Baylor. She was um, uh, she was a teacher. She began teaching at a junior high in Austin. Entered politics in 76 uh, when she ran for Travis County Commissioner. And hmm. then... Uh, Pretty big jump from there. She was then six years later elected to the uh, elected uh, state treasurer uh, and the first woman elected to a statewide office in Texas in 50 years. Mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, Ma, was Ma Ferguson. Ma Ferguson is <laughs> probably, that's a, boy, talk about a strange story in Texas politics. <laughs> Outside the scope of the Waco History Podcast. But, um, yeah. Uh, so she, uh, uh, she gained national prom- prominence when she delivered the keynote address in the 1988 National uh, Democratic Convention. So I, I remember that speech well. I mean, she it's it's three years later she's going to be in the in the she's going to get the governorship in Texas. So this really vaults her mm-hmm. as kind of a national political figure. And I was looking back at that speech this morning, and I thought it was really interesting. She, this is the uh, uh, Bush one versus Dukakis. Uh, fight in 1988 uh the where was george uh speech if you if you remember that but in in the heart of this speech uh she reads a letter uh from a she says a young mother in lorena uh and it's this very heartbreaking letter i thought i'd read it for you if you want to if you want to hear it right I'm, I'm ready for some heartbreak uh she's uh, she's trying to so she's lambasting the reagan administration and in connecting um uh, Bush, of course, uh, to Reagan as his vice president. But she reads this a letter from a young mother in Lorena. Our worries go from payday to payday, just like millions of others. And we have two fairly decent incomes. But I worry how I'm going to pay the rising car insurance and food. I pray my kids don't have to have a growth spurt from August to December so I don't have to buy new jeans. We buy clothes at the budget stores and we have them fray, stretch in the first wash. We ponder and try to figure out how we're going to pay for college and braces and tennis shoes. We don't take vacations and we don't go out to eat. Please don't think me ungrateful. We have jobs, a nice place to live, and we're healthy. We're the people you see every day in the grocery stores. We obey the laws. We pay our taxes. And we fly our flags on holidays. And we plot along trying to make it better for ourselves and our children and our parents. We aren't vocal anymore. I think we may be too tired. I believe that people like us are forgotten in America. Kind of becomes this theme that they're right. they're touting at that uh, convention coming off the the Republican triumphs in eighty and eighty four, right. and of course uh, Bush is going to crush Dukakis uh, in the eighty eight election. But out of that convention, the star is really Ann Richards. Uh, right. She becomes a national political figure. Right. You know, it's funny as you read that. Um, and something we haven't discussed before is the flip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the flip in Texas. Yeah. Cause you, as you read that letter, I'm, I'm thinking that's a letter we would hear a Republican mm-hmm. running for office now. Yep. Read. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. So she's, she's right before the flip. Yeah. Right. Or so, in the yeah. process yeah, of the in flip. The process of the flip. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Cause really all, all these, every, every person we've discussed up to this point has been a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, so another figure we ought to mention here really connected to Ann Richards because their their fates are kind of intertwined 
is Bob Bullock, yeah. uh, who, yeah. uh, again, not a Waco and, um, uh, I think Bullock is from Abilene or something like that, but, but goes to, uh, Baylor law. Uh, he goes to go to law school, uh, right. at Baylor. Uh, and it's, uh, Richards and Bullock that are in power, uh, when the Southwest conference falls apart, which may, <laughs> may connect back to our, uh, a lot of controversy on that one. Yeah, episode you heard earlier with, uh, uh, John Morris, when we were talking about sports crossroads, uh, locally, but it's good timing for Baylor university that, uh, they're both in power when the question of where Baylor's going to land, uh, as they reshuffle, uh, the conference deck, uh, in, in the mid 1990s. Well, too, uh, so from uh, from Bullock's standpoint, he is a Hillsboro High School. I'm sorry, yeah, Hillsboro. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh, so not too far. Uh, yeah, I mean, we we can include him in the Waco History Podcast. That's right. Hill but Junior College um, went to Texas Tech and then Baylor Law. Extremely powerful figure uh, and kind of mentor to George W. Bush. But extremely powerful figure in 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 Texas politics in the late uh, 20th century. Yeah. Um, okay, let's go back and grab a couple of those folks that you mentioned a second ago. Okay, sure. Um, uh, Price Daniels mm-hmm. was uh, he was governor in Texas. Um, what were the dates on him? Uh, Fifty-seven From, to sixty-three. Yep, fifty-seven, sixty-three, and Baylor grad. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Daniel family has left its mark in Waco. They have. Yeah, if you look behind uh, the Mayburn Museum, there's a uh, there's an antiquated uh, Texas town uh, mm-hmm. that is uh, affectionately known as Billville, uh, which was which was given to the university by Price Daniel's younger brother, uh, Governor Bill Daniel. Not was not governor of Texas. Uh, he was governor of I think it's Guam. Um. Yeah, and also uh, while you're while you're pondering that in your memory bank, the uh, uh, Bill Daniel Student Center on campus that uh, was built, I believe, in the '40s, came from that family. Yeah, uh, Bill Daniel was governor of Guam from '61 to '63, and was forever known after that as Governor Bill. Uh, nice. Uh, yeah. All right. See, look at all this stuff running right through Waco. <laughs> um, and then besides uh, Price Daniel, we had Mark White, who mm-hmm. was governor from 83 to 87. Um, I think also historically while you were at Baylor, uh, he was governor, just to no, put I, that in I, historical I started context. in 87, thank you. You started in 87, okay. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, a long time. He's a Baylor alum, served Texas Secretary of State, Attorney General, uh, and Governor. Um he claims to be the only Texas governor to host a live bear in the governor's reception room. Uh, so Baylor Chamber of Commerce wow. uh, assisted him with that. And you, you can listen <laughs> to, about the bear uh, program at Baylor on another podcast episode. But uh, again, he's also a big advocate uh, in this push to keep uh, Baylor, to put Baylor in the Big 12 right. uh, when those realignments happen in the 90s. Well, let's nice. go. To, let's so, go to the highest office in the land. Well, think, well, before you, know, you do, we had a couple. We had a couple of. Uh, we were going to mention uh, some. Uh, oh, uh, Leon senators. Jaworski. Oh no, 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 senators. Senators. So, okay. So we said uh, we 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 uh, mentioned Richard Koch, 
served a senior senator, but also Price Daniel did too. He did, yeah. In fact, uh, it's interesting. He he did the opposite of Coke. He resigned as as senator to become governor. He's he's the guy who chose uh, to him. It was more important a more important role mm-hmm. than uh, senator. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, let's talk presidential visits. So there's been a ton of yeah. presidential visits. It's, you know, I, as I, I realized until I looked at it. Yeah, yeah, as I began to dig into it as well, I was surprised how many I had forgotten. Uh, I mean, it's mainly a, a 20th century story, as, as you might imagine, but uh, a lot of presidents, uh, well, in a 21st century story, but a lot of presidents are going to come visit Waco, right, Rick? Yeah, and and probably a lot of that it just has to do with transportation. Mm-hmm. You know, the the ability for a president to to get out of DC and visit anywhere uh, was was probably pretty limited until yeah. uh, until the first part of the 20th century, and that's what we saw here. So the first brush with a with the president was in 1911 when uh, Theodore Roosevelt showed up to Waco to uh, at the invitation of the Young Men's Business League uh, to address the uh, the citizens here. They met out at Katy Park. Used to be the the uh, uh, the baseball park here. Yeah, we we talked about that on uh, another episode. Um, the the attendance. I mean, Katy Park right there on the Katy Rail Line, the Kansas, Missouri, and Texas. And so it it's Magnolia. I mean, it, it's, yeah, you know, it's the same. Yeah, home plate uh, where the wiffle ball park is at, at Magnolia Marketplace is where home plate was. Yeah. At, at Katy Park, and so would have stepped off the train there to address a large crowd at Crady Park. Yeah. And uh, I guess in 1911, um, he, he was already out of the presidency, right? He yeah, so Taft finished in 09. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, then, uh, but then Taft made a visit to Waco mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. So Taft comes. I think he addressed his chapel. Uh, he comes and talks at uh, chapel while he's here, which is that's something I know you skipped often. No, you no, I, no, you I, never missed. Sorry. I was always there. Yeah, Jeff Dunham was there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. So he spoke at chapel, and then Calvin Coolidge, Silent Cal, came came through town um, I, after I le- after sen- leaving office as well. Yeah, I got the sense that he didn't address the. It wasn't like a he was meeting with folks, right? When when Calvin Coolidge came, yeah, right? I I don't think it was a public spectacle. Yeah, couldn't, yeah. couldn't find a lot of detail yeah. on that, but. Uh, he did come through. Okay, so then back to uh, intersecting our story with Pat Neff. After World War II, March 6, 1947, Harry Truman came by. He was the first sitting president to visit Waco. So the other guys were already out of office, uh, but still big deal to have have uh, someone like that come through town. Actually, uh, so this is, uh, this is where uh, a visit actually intersects with international politics. So this is actually the... The speech that Truman gives at Baylor is a really important speech. Uh, so he gives a, he gets an honorary doctorate from Baylor, and he he thanks Pat Neff in that speech. If you want to go uh, look at it, but then he gives this talk about uh, connecting economic policy to, uh, he, he's essentially uh, articulating the Truman Doctrine. What kind of becomes this? controlling idea during the cold war mm, so he's laying right. ideas out for the cold war about how the u.s needs to support uh, economically and militarily countries that are fighting uh, against uh, aggression and insurgency 
And it's right after. So this is on, uh, I think, March 7th, he gives his speech. On March 12th, he addresses both houses of Congress, and he asked for $400 million. Wow, $400 million. Which which, uh, used to be a lot of money. <laughs> uh, to support a fight going on uh, in Greece, uh, the, the civil war that's right, going on in right, Greece right. that is an ins- is a communist insurgency within Greece, and so uh, that speech at at uh, Baylor makes national lo- news or international news because of there he's beginning to talk about the reasons why the U.S. needs to support a fight going on in Greece, uh, and it's also laying out this really bipartisan kind of Cold War framework that the U.S. is going to be committed to for the next 20 years. And so it's a really important speech he gives it back. Right, right. Um, well, and, and you could see how that led to uh, the Korean War, Vietnam, mm-hmm. so on, so mm-hmm. forth. So That's right. Uh, so on a national scale, that was important. But more importantly, from a religious standpoint, even though Truman was a Baptist, he was a drinker. Yes, he was. Yes. And uh, so, unfortunately, his visit to, to Baylor and his honorary doctorate given by, uh, by Pat Neff kind of riled some of the, the Baptist leaders at the time. <laughs> yeah, and actually, uh, Baylor's undergoing a bit of a revival in this period uh, as well. So there would have been some religious fervor uh, to right. push back on uh, the drinking president. Right. Okay, well then, uh, uh, not too... Um, Far after that, uh, about a decade later, Dwight Eisenhower, in the middle of his first term, is the featured speaker at Baylor in 1956 at the spring commencement. So Eisenhower, who's going to be president from 53 to 61, first president born in Texas. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So Eisenhower is really important in that regard for Texas history. Yeah. Nine years later, Lyndon Baines Johnson was the graduation speaker, and uh, he also received an honorary doctorate. Um, I guess he would he been vice president then or president? Uh, he's president at that point, and um, the uh, his family uh, has all sorts of connections to Baylor as well. Obviously, LBJ doesn't have a Baylor connection, but his family does. Right. In 76, Gerald Ford, President Gerald Ford, is welcomed by uh, then-Baylor President Abner McCall. um, And people packed Waco Hall to listen to Ford's comments um, as he talked about uh, 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 our bear in the White House. Well, I'm sorry, no, he he received a jacket emblazoned with the words on the back, our bear in the White House. Yeah, uh, so Ford, two years earlier had given the National Coach of the Year Award to Grant Taff uh, in the 1974 season. Is that called a yeah. quid pro quo right there? Yeah, maybe maybe there's some sort of agreement there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, also in 76, uh, Reagan comes through. So Reagan's campaigning at this point. He's trying to get the gotcha. Republican nomination gotcha. uh, away from Ford in the 76 election, but he comes through and gives a campaign speech in Waco Hall. Okay, well, the next one's my my favorite because it intersects with my life, and I believe yours as well. Yeah, you're so self-centered. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, okay, so Ronald Reagan um, comes to the Farrell Center. The 
Ferrell Center was just opening in 1988. This and, is the opening event. Yeah. This is the grand opening of the Ferrell Center. Yeah. Yeah. And do uh, you remember that you were there? Right? Oh yeah. I yeah. remember getting herded over there with all the other freshmen. And, uh, <laughs> I honestly did not know what I was getting t- into. T- tell me what you remember about that event. Um, yeah. Standing down there on the floor, uh, Reagan, uh, you know, he's great orator, you know, mm-hmm. he was like giving a pep rally speech almost. And, um, well, well researched because, and of course, as a, as a freshman uh, at Baylor, you're learning all the traditions and all the songs and all the meanings of things or whatever. And he's, he, whoever wrote his speech wrote all those things into his speech. So, you know, he was, he was eliciting this great response from the Baylor students. Cause he would, he would, uh, you know, talk about, uh, you know, the Sikkim bears or that at the time we actually gave Dr. Pepper to the bear. <laughs> yes. I remember, remember that. Yeah. 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 They figured out at some point the bears get cavities and so they shouldn't be <laughs> drinking Dr. Pepper. Um, I, and I, I think I remember he led us in a sickum bear, like at the end he did, he did, uh, he put his paw up and uh, did a sickum bears with yeah. the crowd. Oh yeah. Crowd went nuts. Yeah. It was, it was great. So he, he's campaigning, I guess he's, I mean, he, he's this president is, then. Yeah. This is the end of his second term toward the end of his second term. So he's, I guess he's here to campaign for Bush. Um, I, I, I can't remember the political circumstances behind why he came, mm. but he gets a jacket uh, similar to Ford's jacket uh, that he got in the seventies. Well, I'm, I'm sure he wore it proudly in the White House too. <laughs> so, uh, you, you know, now that I'm looking at this, um, we've forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, two thousands, two thousand and tens. We're going to have a presidential visit every yeah. decade uh, the, the, since the 1940s. I, I haven't been tracking it exactly, but I think we've only missed Nixon. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? I'm sure Nixon. Uh, FDR. We didn't know FDR, no, no Nixon. FDR. Well, we've picked up since Truman. So, I, at, at, yeah, I'm sure if Nixon's second term, you know, would have gone better. <laughs> But we, we do have a Nixon, Nixon connection in a minute that we'll we talk do. about. Yeah, so yeah. We'll, we won't leave old poor Nixon out. That's right. Um, all right, so moving the timeline forward in 92, before he was president, and in fact, I attended this event as well. Oh, you did? With a good friend of ours, Scott Bryson. Okay. Who uh, who I didn't agree with his politics. But, yeah, still don't. Um, yeah. Um, so, uh, at the suspension bridge, Bill Clinton made a stop on during his presidential campaign. Yeah, do you remember what the uh, thrust was of uh, Clinton's speech there in the Indian Springs Park? No, no, I just remember he was way late, and I was really getting <laughs> perturbed. <laughs> and I don't, you know, and I was probably standing so far away I could probably barely barely hear him or see him. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I was there though. Um, Carter also comes in '93. Uh, this is, of course, well after his uh, presidency, but he comes and visits Waco. Uh, in 93 as well. Yeah. Yeah. He was a, uh, uh, looks like a speaker, distinguished speaker, um, uh, for, uh, Herb Reynolds, who was Baylor president at the time. Mm-hmm. So tell folks, uh, you know, I'm sure if they've lived in, in Waco anytime at all, they know a little bit about the Western white house, but, uh, tell folks about uh, that, that period. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so of course, George W. Bush, um, becomes governor first and then uh, is, is elected to the presidency. And b- actually before he was elected president, uh, he, he bought 
about fifteen hundred acres, I think, just mm. uh, uh, outside of Crawford. I guess that would be west, kind of north, uh, no, uh, southwest of Crawford. Uh, and and uh, raw piece of land. It may have some structures on it, but they built a, a, a beautiful house out there. Um, uh, ironically, at the time, uh, tying this back to my air conditioning background, I worked out at uh, at the train factory, train plant back then. Mm-hmm. And they were putting in a geothermal air conditioning system at his at his uh, new new building or his new home, which is what we built actually in Waco. So the uh, every, everybody in the plant was excited that our equipment was getting used in the uh, future president's oh, how cool. uh, house, um, which was really just a few miles away. Did you get to go out there for the install? I didn't. I, oh. had, I had some friends that went out there, and uh, I was not invited. Mm-hmm. I have, uh, yeah. Um, uh, but that was the beginnings of the Western White House, which became uh, uh, incredibly, uh, it brought an incredible spotlight to wake out, Waco throughout his presidency, mm-hmm. um, which I'm, I'm sure we could unpack a whole lot there. Uh, everything from, I, I believe he, uh, didn't, didn't he have an international conference here that mm-hmm. got hosted in Waco? Yeah. Um, on trade, big trade conference, yeah, uh, is that right? Yeah, and I know he met with uh, Vicente Fox, I think, in Waco. Uh, Putin, uh, yeah, Vla- Vladimir Putin yeah. came to, to Waco, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, was it the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, who who knew that these uh, attended, international dignitaries attended a bunch of Baylor games? I remember I'd go mm-hmm. to a game every now and then, and and for a while there, there was actual hope, uh, in in a sincere um, effort to get his library here, presidential library. Yeah, in fact, there was some discussion. The first discussion I remember of um, building something across the Brazos was using some of that land that Baylor had acquired Absolutely. to build the presidential library right. over there. Yeah. That became the uh, McLean Stadium. The new and, McLean Stadium. And the Clyde Hart track complex. Yeah. So. <clears throat> um, at the end of the day, I think uh, the Wacoans are probably more excited to have a stadium over there, but I don't know that for sure. <laughs> um, well, you rarely get two presidential libraries. So, you, you, you mean, you know, we, we may still get one. And if, you know, if, if, if you perhaps or our Dylan, guest Dylan, Dylan who knows, may go could, on to the presidency, he, he could, uh, uh, we'll have capacity to now level. to build his library. Yeah. Um, and then I think uh, I think we had one more presidential uh, uh, maybe brush with a president. Yeah. And under unfortunate circumstances, of course, uh, but the uh, West Texas uh, fertilizer plant explosion uh, that occurred in 2013 uh, Baylor actually at the Farrell Center hosted uh, a memorial service for the victims uh, of that fertilizer plant explosion. Uh, and President Obama uh, in 2013 came during his presidency, so he, he was in the, in the White House at the time, to uh, address uh, about 4,000 uh, attendees who were at that memorial service. Um, you know, another, um, uh, we'd mentioned a second ago, coming back to Nixon as president. Yeah, it all comes back to Nixon. In a, in a connection, a Waco connection there. 
there was a uh, a guy who, uh, as far as I know, never ran for public office, but uh, was was hugely uh, uh, instrumental in the political process, and uh, that was Leon Jaworski. Uh, so, give us a little bit of background on on Leon. So, Jaworski is is really fascinating. We have a long series uh, of oral history interviews with Jaworski. Uh, in the Institute for Oral History Collections, born in Texas, um, immigrant. His, his mother was a uh, Austrian immigrant. His father was a Polish immigrant. Um, he's after named after uh, Spartan King Leonidas. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a brother named Hannibal, so his parents had some flair uh, in naming their their children. Uh, champion debater at Waco High, graduated Baylor Law School. Uh, and went on to have a, a pretty amazing legal career. Uh, 1925, the youngest person ever admitted to the Texas bar. And, um, I mean, he defends bootleggers during Prohibition, and he he uh, joins a little law firm in Houston in 1931 that becomes known as uh, Fulbright and Jaworski. As, if, if you're familiar with law at all in Texas, you know that name. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the largest law firms uh, in the United States, president of Texas Bar, American Bar Association, a, really a really important contribution that Jaworski makes to international law. And this is a, a period where uh, post-World War II where they're prosecuting individuals for war crimes. Um, and he's involved in a case where German civilians were accused of murdering six American airmen forced down over Germany. Um, and there's all sorts of cases Jaworski's involved in. Interestingly, he could have been uh, central in the Nuremberg trials just because he had that sort of standing um, as a attorney. Uh, but he he turned down the opportunity to participate them because he thought they were based on laws that didn't exist at the time those culpable acts were mm. committed. He had kind of right. an ethical objection to the ways in which uh, some of those prosecutions were occurring. Yeah. So fast forward, uh, November 1st, 1973, he became the special prosecutor in the Watergate scandal. Oh, yeah. Well, mine, folks, uh, the Watergate scandal, which did not occur in Waco. (laughs) No, Uh, no, no. It's uh, named after actually a hotel, Watergate Hotel there in uh, in D.C. that also has office complex attached to it. And... uh, 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 I believe what is uh, alleged is um, uh, some of Nixon's operatives were breaking into the Democrat National Headquarters to get information for on the upcoming election. Yeah, they, they were trying to get information on uh, George McGovern's kind of campaign strategy uh, for the 1972 presidential election, who is his Democratic opponent. If you go back and look at the results of that election, Nixon did not need to worry about the Democratic uh, campaign strategy. <laughs> uh, but, of course, the issue that uh, Jaworski is involved in Watergate is this investigation into uh, how much did Richard Nixon know uh, or not know uh, with right. regard uh, to those actions, the break-in at Watergate. Yeah. It's it, interesting. an interesting thing to know that I, I think most folks don't know is uh, – um, Jaworski had voted for Nixon twice. So he voted for Nixon in the 68 election. Wow. He voted for Nixon in the 72 election. And I think he later votes for Bush. And so he he was not um, 
he was very supportive of some Republican candidates for president. Right. Uh, but I mean, I think he's seen as this, uh, but I think he was, he was seen as someone who was fair and impartial right. and right, could right. be a, a fair judge of, of the, as a special prosecutor. Right. Um, it's, it's just amazing when you think about Watergate, every, every scandal, big or small in, in, in politics today gets called something gate. Mm-hmm. Right. All because of this major incident. That's right. Um, yeah. So the big issue that that comes down to the special prosecutor is trying to obtain uh, the tapes, Nixon uh, recorded conversations mm-hmm. uh, that were on the White House fo- phone and they were trying to obtain those conversations. Nixon decided to record himself. It wasn't something that was imposed on him. Uh, but the special prosecutor wanted to seize those tapes. And, of course, ultimately, Nixon hands over the tapes and his resignation uh, at the same time with a 17-minute gap uh, mm, on the tapes. That's right. Uh, but there was enough information there that uh, would have uh, uh, fueled uh, the, the trial right. uh, after Nixon's impeachment. Okay, back on, uh, on the Waco uh, side of things. I think we, we'd be remiss from a uh, political standpoint in Waco to not mention uh, Lyndon Olson. Yeah. Tell folks about Lyndon. Uh, Lyndon is, uh, he, he becomes uh, the uh, ambassador uh, under under uh, uh, Bill Clinton to uh, Sweden in uh, 1997. Does that till 2001. So he's the U.S. ambassador to Sweden. Um. I th- one of the one of the best stories, and uh, you can get this if you go by Uncle Dan's and talk to Dan. He'll mm-hmm. tell you about serving barbecue in Sweden. So it's a it's a beautiful story. <laughs> but uh, so, how do you think we should think about uh, Waco as from this political angle? If we let's back up a little bit and and look at it from a kind of higher level, if Waco is a crossroads, right? What are the ways in which you think it's been a kind of a political crossroads over its history? Hmm. Well, it, you know, certainly from the, I mean, we were able to list several personalities that mm-hmm. have played an important role uh, more heavily on the state side, but nationally as well. Um, you know, it's hard to know how that compares to other communities. I mean, we only know ourselves. You, you hear, um, and this is an unverified stat that, you know, we've had more governors out of Waco than any other community in Texas. It seems like it could be very viable. I don't know if that's an accurate stat mm-hmm. or not. Um, we have three of them buried in Oakwood Cemetery. So yeah. uh, that's, that's probably a, a winning stat, I would guess. But um, so, yeah, you, you think about that. It seems a little bit of an outsized influence politically uh, in the state of Texas. It, it, especially early on. Uh, I think I mentioned earlier, it feels like we don't have quite the, uh, the political influence that we might've had years ago. Mm -hmm. A lot of dynamics that go with that. Uh, If you look at the state of Texas, um, you know, and, and it's, it's probably varied since the last time I looked a year or two ago, but uh, population wise, McLennan County is 18th, 19th, 20th in population. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you took the top two or three counties in Texas, their population 
uh, is more than the rest of the state yeah. together. Yeah. So the way the way Texas has grown out, or at least the, where it is now, it is it, the the political power really rests in the major metroplexes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Waco sometimes is a bit of flyover. Yeah. Uh, country in in some respects, and some of those big uh, yeah. political questions, and of course. Part of uh, Texas's status is we haven't been a swing state in a long time right. as far as in national politics. And so I think that leads to less attention as far as national politics go. Right, right. Um, so I, I think it'll be interesting as Waco's fortunes continue to increase, uh, how, how that changes the dynamic. We've had certainly have had uh, a, a lot of spotlight, whether it's through Magnolia or even... Uh, athletic events at, at, at Baylor or, or teams there that have, have performed well. There, there's been a lot more national focus, it feels like, than than what we see, you know, in the previous uh, uh, 50 years or so. I think so. Uh, I think this conversation is not terribly disconnected from the next conversation that we're going to have on the Crossroads series that will look as Waco as a military crossroads over its history yeah. So, yeah yeah rick i look forward to being back with you again on that one sounds great all right thanks for listening to the waco history podcast like what you heard subscribe rate and review our show on itunes so we can reach more listeners you can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on waco's past at wacohistory.org Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.